The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The EU AI Act is not just going to affect companies in the EU. It's going to affect a lot of, of companies here in the U.S. And depending on what happens at the federal or state level in the U.S., if those companies are complying with the EU AI Act first, then that certainly has the potential to create a baseline of compliance here in the United States. I am Eugenia Lohtri, Lawfare's Fellow in Technology Policy and Law, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, October 23rd, 2023. The promise and risks posed by artificial intelligence appear to have captured our collective imagination. The risk seemed to span from global doom brought by a rogue AI to the enshrinement of harmful bias and discrimination in systems that can determine whether you get a loan. The stakes require governments to step up and regulate the field, with several key companies advocating for government action. The call has been answered, but conceptions of responsible AI risk management and appropriate regulations are already diverging across jurisdictions. To discuss the approaches to AI regulation in the United States and in the European Union, I sat down with Ariana Evers, Special Counsel at Wilmer Hale, and Itzik Benisri, Counsel also at Wilmer Hale. They recently authored an article on comparative approaches to AI regulation for lawfare. We talked about the breadth of regulatory options being discussed, the similarities and differences across jurisdictions, and how the quickly evolving field affects how they help their clients navigate AI-related challenges. It's the Lawfare Podcast for October 23rd, comparing approaches to AI regulation with Ariana Evers and Itzik Benisri. Just to get us started, I wanted to ask, when we talk about AI regulation, how should we understand the scope of it, right? Like, are we talking about how to regulate the development of AI, the deployment of specific products, you know, what's considered AI in this conversation that just seems to capture everyone's imagination right now? Sure. I'm happy to take that from a U.S. perspective at first. You know, I think part of the difficulty right now, at least in the United States, is that it seems like everything uh, is in scope and everything is, is AI. And so there's a lot of, you know, conversation about whether we should just be thinking about regulating some of these more advanced deep learning models or whether we should also be thinking about 
you know, technologies we've had for a long time, like automated decision making. I think at least in the US, we're sort of folding them all in together. And other questions about what's going to be regulated or certainly are we thinking about just the makers of the system? Are we also thinking about the end users? How are we going to allocate responsibility if something goes wrong? And then are we thinking about, you know, regulation that's just in specific sectors? Or is it going to be sort of more comprehensive? And and at least in the US, all of those are sort of open questions that lawmakers and regulators are grappling with. Yeah, from, from a European perspective, I think the first thing I would like to say is that the AI Act will apply to providers that place AI systems on the market or in service in the EU. And so an important point to keep in mind is that the AI Act will have extraterritorial reach, right? So it will apply to AI providers irrespective of their place of establishment. I think another thing I would just like to to insist on is that of course what's considered AI for the purposes of regulation is is a key question and the answer probably wasn't as clear as it should have been in the EU uh there's been much criticism of the European Commission's proposed definition of AI and that's simply because that definition is very very broad the commission basically proposed to define ai as a software that is developed you know using certain techniques that could generate content or predictions could also be recommendations or decisions influencing the environments they interact with and what we're seeing now is the european parliament insisting more on the fact that ai systems operate with some degree of autonomy but the the definition is is still unclear and the lawmakers are still working on it. And now to to make things a little bit more complicated, we also have kind of a very broad scope of what is this regulation trying to accomplish, right? Like the kind of risks that policymakers are are concerned about. So a lot of the discourse around AI recently has focused on many of the existential threats that AI could theoretically present. But at the same time, you know, are we maybe losing sight of some of the more, you know, immediate threats that AI not only can pose, but already presents? So when you look at this upcoming regulation, what are the AI risks that that these bills are trying to address? So I would say that the, the EU wants to address uh, the risk of people interacting with an AI system without knowing that it's AI. And generally, the EU wants to address the risk of people being confronted with AI-generated content without knowing it. And so you'll find rules in the AI Act to address that risk. Uh, then the EU is also concerned by, about AI systems that raise significant risks for people's lives or people's fundamental rights. And well, typically it's expected that more and more infrastructures and medical devices or interventions will use AI and that kind of AI systems might be subject to failures and that could cause uh, death or serious injury. So the AI Act is imposing several requirements to ensure that such systems are robust enough the EU is also concerned about the impact of AI systems on individuals' rights, which may arise from the use of AI in the 
administration of justice, for example, uh, but also in, in recruitment and HR processes. The EU is obviously uh, very much concerned about how AI could threaten democracies. That's typically what we're seeing in China with social scoring, and obviously the EU doesn't want that. Yeah, I mean, I think this has been part of the big sort of policy debate, especially in Congress over the, the past several months about, you know, whether or not we're just distracting ourselves by focusing on the, the existential threats versus whether we focus on these nearer term risks. I think we'll go into more detail on this, but, you know, the, the administration has certainly been here in the U.S. been focused on what I would consider the more day to day risks like discrimination and bias and making sure that there's transparency around around the use of AI. And I think we're going to see this reflected in sort of any eventual regulation. I think this sort of existential risks that we've been hearing sort of talked about by some of the larger technology companies are still far enough in the future and not tangible enough that it's a little bit hard to know how those are going to be reflected in any sort of bill or law that or regulation that we might see in the near term. Now, when we talk about policy in the US and the EU, I think one of the common distinctions to be made is basically a philosophical difference when it comes to thinking about the balance between innovation and regulation, right? Like there is some understanding or a belief that regulation could stifle the promise of technology. And these two jurisdictions approach that issue very differently. Do you see that difference kind of come through in this type of regulation when it comes to AI? I think balancing innovation and risk has really been probably one of the main reasons why we haven't seen the U.S. move more quickly. There's just a lot of uncertainty about how we make sure that here in the U.S., we continue to sort of be at the forefront of developing these models, enabling companies to to use them as well. And it's a little unclear, you know, what is the right calculation going to be with regards to to sort of risks and and driving innovation. And you see a lot of the inquiry on the Hill in Congress reflects that that tension. And I think, you know, where we come out in the end is to be decided, but a lot of the approach that we've seen from the administration so far, that includes sort of this voluntary framework that a, lar- a lot of the larger technology companies agreed to, the sort of commitments that they made a few months ago, as well as the National Institute of Standards and Technology Risk Management Framework for AI and the White House Blueprint. You know, these are all sort of voluntary largely principles-based approaches that don't do too much um, because there's this underlying concern about stifling innovation too early on um, in this field. I think uh, from the the EU perspective, I would just say that you're totally right. There is usually a cultural difference between the EU and the US. And that's precisely the fact that the EU tends to be way more prescriptive than the US. It's just a fact, something that sometimes makes some people pretty sad, but that's just the way it is. One thing, of course, 
that needs to be taken into account in that context is the fact that the largest AI players are not in Europe. And obviously, that plays a critical role, you know, when uh, when it comes to develop new regulation. Okay. So I, I want to turn us now to maybe a more in-depth discussion of what you're seeing in terms of regulation in each of these jurisdictions. So it's like, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Could you give us an overview of what are some of the instruments that would regulate AI in the European Union? Sure. Um, that's actually a very, uh, a very important question because it's certainly true that the AI Act will be the cornerstone of AI regulation in Europe. Uh, but AI regulation won't just be about the AI Act. And it's really important to have a, a global understanding of all relevant rules. Other than the AI Act, the most important instrument is probably the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation that I think everybody knows by now. The GDPR is relevant when it comes to the processing of personal data. And so the GDPR already provides individuals with a right not to be subject to a decision that is based solely on automated processing in certain conditions. So that could already be relevant. And in addition, I would also mention the fact that this, the EU is also working on other instruments to hold companies liable for damages caused by defects in their AI systems. And also additional instruments to, you know, make sure that victims can relatively easily prove their product liability claims. So uh, we're really seeing, you know, more more and more uh, AI-specific rules being developed in the EU. So you mentioned that the EU AI Act uh, will be the cornerstone of this regulation. Now, this act, if I remember correctly, was proposed in April of 2021. And the technology and our expectations for what it's going to be able to do and and the concerns that it raises are evolving almost like daily, right? So has the act evolved to capture that evolving conversation? And if so, how? Yeah, sure. So what happened is that the, the European Parliament has been seeking to expand the list of what's called high and unacceptable risk AI in the AI Act. And and we can obviously talk a bit more about that later. But basically, when it comes to high risk AI, the parliament is uh, concerned about things we've seen developing, such as AI systems to influence voters in political campaigns, for example. Or you also have AI systems used in social media to determine the content to promote to users. So those are things that the parliament would like to make sure we do not have in Europe. You would have stricter rules on that, on that kind of AI systems. And then you have what is called unacceptable risk, AI, and that's what you wouldn't have in the EU. Then obviously it depends on the outcome of the, the, the legislative process, but basically the parliament's amendments reflect uh, growing concerns about the use of biometric data uh, by AI systems. Now, of course, the most interesting part is probably the way the parliament has addressed the hype over ChatGPT and 
to do so, they included additional obligations for uh, AI systems in general that are designed to be adapted to a wide range of uh, you know different tasks. It remains to be seen what the final rules will be, but it's likely that users should get to know that content is generated by AI and that those systems should be designed to prevent them from generating illegal content. But again, it's it's still unclear uh, how such systems will be regulated in the in the final AI Act. So let's see. Okay. So so you mentioned you touched on this before the uh, different levels of risk that an AI can pose in just so the act relies on a risk based approach, right? What are those levels of risk? Can you give us some examples of what that looks like and how are the requirements for each level different? Sure. I think that's probably uh, the most important thing to know about the EU AI Act. So there are indeed four levels of risks in, in the Act. And this is key because different requirements apply to each level of risk. Uh, you can you can think of this as a pyramid. At the very bottom, you have what we call minimal risk AI. And a typical example of minimal risk AI is, uh, let's say, spam filters. Generally speaking, those are systems that present no real risk, so they're not subject to any specific requirements under the AI Act. And that's very important because it actually concerns most of the AI systems currently used in Europe. Then one level up, you have limited risk AI systems. Those are systems that are only subject to transparency requirements. So again, for example, you should just know that you are talking to a chatbot and not to a human. Then one level up again, that's the third level, uh, you have high-risk systems, and those systems are subject to much stricter requirements. These are systems used in critical infrastructures that could people uh, that could put people's lives at risk. And it also includes things such as access to education, safety products, employments, or uh, essential services. The, the European Parliament, as I said, is, is seeking to expand this list with a focus on uh, health, fundamental rights, the environment, democracy, and social media. So again, I appreciate that this might be a bit theoretical. So practical examples of high-risk AI include transportation, automatic scoring of exams, that's a pretty cool one, but also a very sensitive one. Uh, robot-assisted surgery uh, or resume sorting and credit scoring software. Now, the most prominent requirement for high-risk AI systems is the obligation to carry out a conformity assessment before placing the product on the market. And the objective here is very simple. It's to make sure that the AI system is safe enough. There are also other requirements. One example is the need to be able to demonstrate compliance to regulators and appropriate human oversight. So basically, you should have appropriate documentation to demonstrate to regulators that you've done 
what you had to what you had to do. And then finally, at the top of the pyramid, you have the fourth level, and that's AI that present unacceptable risks. These are systems that raise key concerns, typically because they threaten people's safety or fundamental rights. And so, for example, in Europe, as I said earlier, it won't be possible to have AI systems that generate social scoring, such as in China. But also, it's it's probably not going possible to have toys that use voice assistance that encourages dangerous behavior. Uh, we're very much concerned about uh, kids in general in Europe, of course. And there is also an important debate between the parliament and European national governments about uh, facial recognition for law enforcement purposes. That's really the most important point in ongoing discussions to finalize the, the AI Act. Speaking of finalizing the AI Act, the European legislative process is famously lengthy. When do you think it's going to be finalized? Where are we in that process? Yeah, yeah. So we're 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 getting there. We're getting there. Okay, um, good to know. Yeah, it's. I think we'll we'll get to see significant process by the end of this year. But again, it very much depends on the discussions they're having about mainly facial recognition. Frankly, that's that's the the most important issue. It will be also in, it will also be interesting actually to to see whether you know the the global events that we're seeing now with with uh, different wars and conflicts will and and several terrorist attacks, including a very recent one in Brussels. Sadly, to what extent those events will have an impact on on those negotiations? And and even once it comes out right and it's finalized, what is the time frame that you know companies will have to? You know, implement these changes because before it comes into into effect. So there, there, they will have time, right? They will, mm-hmm. uh, they will have time. The problem is what we've seen with the GDPR uh, before. The problem that we've seen with the GDPR is that it takes a, a no full amount of time for companies to comply with again very specific and detailed rules that we like to, <laughs> you know, the typical rules we'd like to have in Europe. So there will be enough time for those who want to prepare, let's say, but it's <laughs> it's it's basically very important that, you know, companies in general don't wait for that. It's, 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 it, you don't even need to wait for the final text. You should start preparing now because the, the key aspects of of the of the key rules under the act are rules that people know already so it's it's just time to prepare right now okay now of course this is not just a concern at the eu level and there are several national level initiatives on ai in europe how do you see those efforts that are happening at the country level complementing or not the EU level effort. Yeah, so I think I think the answer varies according to uh, the different types of national initiatives you're looking at. So it's probably worth distinguishing between them. Uh, I would say that first, 
the EU has developed a coordinated plan on AI. And that plan basically asks all member states to put in place national AI strategies or programs. Basically, the EU wanted to encourage national governments to outline investments and and their investments and implementation measures. And that's because the development of AI, frankly, will mostly take place at national level. And the EU will mainly coordinate those national efforts to avoid fragmentation. And that's basically how it's complementary. Interestingly, those national strategies also reflect diverging national concerns and approaches. So, for example, if you look at the French strategy, it's mostly driven by uh, the opportunities that AI will bring to society. But if you look at the German strategy, it appears to be sort of more concerned about the the, the loss of economic opportunities. And then you have national enforcement. And that's just about national regulators doing their job. The interesting thing, though, is that we're seeing data protection authorities imposing fines on companies for violations of uh, data protection rules since the AI Act is not in force yet. So, uh, for example, recently we've seen the French Data Protection Authority imposing a 20 million fine, that's in Euro, of course, uh, on Clearview AI for violating French users' privacy. We've also seen the Italian Data Protection Authority uh, imposing a temporary ban on ChatGPT due to concerns about the lack of transparency, accuracy, and appropriate legal basis for processing personal data. Now, in Italy, the ban has been lifted, but um, and, and that was the case already several months ago, But interestingly, all European authorities are now cooperating and exchanging information, possible enforcement actions against OpenAI. And that's interesting because clearly this is just a taste of what's to come in the next few years. But so, again, we're seeing some sort of complementary approach between EU and national level. Ariana, let me turn to you now. And ask you about the situation in the US. So is there a comparable effort to the EU AI Act in the US? So at the moment, there really isn't. What we have are sort of frameworks that the administration has has put out, the White House blueprint. We have the NIST, RMF, both things that I've, I've mentioned that sort of give us some some guiding principles to follow an overall approach for thinking about potentially what regulation could look like. Um, but we don't have sort of comprehensive legislation that's out there, certainly in Congress, that is being debated on the floor. Uh, I think the most sort of likely next step right now is going to be this forthcoming executive order that we've been hearing the administration speak about that will apparently sort of provide a little bit more meat on the bones on what some sort of regulation of of AI could look like that's a bit more comprehensive. It's expected to take its cue from the commitments that several technology companies agreed to several months ago. 
But again, that's forthcoming. It's supposed to be released in the next few weeks. That will sort of, you know, redouble the pressure on Congress to move even more quickly than it has been trying to move. You know, we've seen on the Hill over the past several months, some high-level frameworks coming out. Senator Schumer had something that he put out, and then we had Blumenthal and Hawley also releasing um, a bipartisan framework for regulating AI. But those are very sort of high-level principles-based. It's not not close to being something comprehensive like the EU has at the moment. I think, uh, as Itzik mentioned, you know, there's there's the possibility that this uh, EU AI Act, as it comes closer to passing, is just going to put additional sort of pressure on the U.S. To, to move and try to do something comprehensive. And then we also have, you know, at the same time at the, at the federal level is trying to figure out its approach to AI. We have the states that are also grappling with the issue, I think in some ways um, are moving faster than the federal government. And so, you know, I think it remains to be seen where we're going to see sort of the comprehensive uh, proposal first? Is it going to be the federal level at the state level? Or there's also the potential, of course, for, for some agencies to try and move ahead with something that's a little bit more tangible. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners, Ben Wittes here. Want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022. And they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others. And it contained some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, the data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information, 
big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I want to tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there. And these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I want to stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that, you know, they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back. And then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it, and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. So some of those state-level bills actually have become law, if, if I recall correctly. So what do those achieve and how would they impact, you know, the conversation at the federal level? Sure. So, you know, there has been a flurry of activity at the state level, but I, it's important to recognize that while there's some more comprehensive proposals, those are sort of in the minority of, of what we actually saw at the state level over the past year. California um, had a bill out there that I think was probably the closest thing to comprehensive sort of legislation that would have required companies developing consequential AI products. So those that are sort of used to make important decisions about people, sort of how I refer to it. So, you know, that might be used in employment, education, housing. Um, it would require those sorts of companies to conduct impact assessments, provide notice and opt-out rights to California residents, and implement a governance program that would contain reasonable administrative and technical safeguards to address the sort of reasonably foreseeable risks for the AI use. But again, like while we saw that come out of California, a lot of what we saw at the state level is sort of targeted towards one aspect of AI or to a particular sort of sector. So, 
you know, and, and those bills were trying to achieve a number of sort of different things, right? Regulating AI in the employment setting, healthcare saw a number of proposals across the states. So did the use of AI for insurance purposes. And then, of course, we saw a number of proposals that would regulate the AI use by sort of state governments. And the thinking there is, is in part, if we can have a model that works well at the state level, eventually that might serve as, as something that could be rolled out more broadly to private businesses as well. So if we're thinking about kind of comprehensive frameworks for AI, and you have all of these different documents coming from different agencies, what is the level of harmonization between those frameworks? Are they compatible? Are they creating, you know, duplicative efforts? Or, you know, are they are they simple to follow? <laughs> well, I guess, simple to follow is, is very different than compatibility, right? I think overall they are, and, and let's maybe start with sort of what's happening at the federal level first, and particularly what we've seen from the administration. You know, the the White House uh, blueprint, as well as some DOD AI principles that came out, you know, pretty early on. I think they they were published first in a February twenty twenty memo are really focused on sort of like, what is our ethical use of AI? And what are sort of the principles that we want to have in force to ensure that, you know, the use of AI aligns with civil rights, democratic values, and protects people's privacy as well. And so, you know, I think those, those documents largely align with each other. But again, you know, it's it's one thing to sort of have these principles and, and another to move towards implementation. I think that's what really the, the NIST RMF is designed to do is to get us a little bit closer towards understanding, you know, how we put the principles into practice. The hope, of course, is that when this new executive order comes out in a few weeks, that will also help us understand a little bit more how we implement these principles but at least, you know, the RMF does provide some sort of mapping of these high principles of how we make and ensure that our AI is designed to be trustworthy and responsible. And so it, it is set up in such a way that, you know, aligns with some core functions, which are sort of the types of functions that attorneys in the compliance world, uh, which is sort of where I come from. I'm, I'm a privacy attorney. It, it aligns with the sorts of things that we think about when we're thinking about compliance and it's how do we govern the use of AI and that's how do we create sort of a culture of risk management? How do we map things? So recognize sort of what the risks are and identify them. How do we measure those risks? And then how do we sort of prioritize and manage the risks? You know, in that document, sort of gives some suggested actions and ways to to document things um, that really does start to give organizations the ability to like implement it. But it's certainly, I don't think for any organization at this point, a simple process. And one of the tricky things, of course, about sort of the approach that we have in the U.S. is that it is it's flexible and voluntary. All of these, the blueprint, the risk management framework. 
right? These are not imposed on our companies, but it's up to us to sort of decide at this point how they best fit in, which is, you know, both, a, I guess, a blessing and a curse to some extent and can make it difficult for attorneys to figure out how, you know, they're going to decide for each entity to, to balance sort of the risks and potential benefits of, of AI. So given the different stages at which the conversation seems to be in the EU and in the US, I would be interested to know if you see some of the European efforts or the way in which the conversation is being carried out, especially around you know, the levels of risk and how to manage those, are those influencing the discussions in the US? You know, is, is this kind of a, a conversation and is there a kind of a feedback loop or are these happening kind of in parallel but separately? I think there is certainly going to be some influence on the US. I, I think it's both substantive and non-substantive as well, right? Like on the non-substantive side, certainly the fact that the EU has its, you know, for lack of a better word, act together a little bit more than we do is, as I mentioned earlier, putting pressure on us in the in the US to act. Beyond that, I do think there's some alignment over the importance of ensuring that the use of AI is principles-based and that we are focused on ensuring that there are democratic values, a lack of discrimination, and that human rights are um, really a focus when we think about AI that aligns across both jurisdictions. You know, this sort of idea of a risk approach is also in the U.S., but again, it it, it is a much more flexible way of thinking about risk. Um, we don't have this categorization at this point in time. It's sort of up to each entity to do its own risk analysis and decide, you know, what compliance obligations they're going to undertake in order to manage the risk. I do think there's the possibility that we end up in with a situation where some types of AI that actually would be less regulated in the EU because they're not particularly high risk, actually companies are choosing to implement more compliance obligations than they would have to in the EU just because of this flexible approach. And as we know, different companies take sort of different approaches to responsible data governance as well. You know, and as Itzik mentioned, the EU AI Act is not just going to affect companies in the EU. It's going to affect a lot of, of companies here in the U.S. And depending on what happens at the federal or state level in the U.S., if those companies are complying with the EU AI Act first, then that certainly has the potential to create a baseline of compliance here in the United States. I think it's interesting, actually. I've already seen vendors crop up who are offering to help companies with their AI EU Act compliance. And as Itzik mentioned, you know, you need to start thinking about this early on. And so companies that operate across borders are certainly going to start sort of putting mechanisms into place uh, to deal with the upcoming EU AI Act. I guess the one other thing that I will mention is there's this sort of clear overlay here with what happened with regards to, to privacy law that I think 
is similar to what I was just mentioning with the fact that, you know, you comply with the EU first, if that passes first, you know, we really saw that with uh, the GDPR and the sort of Brussels effect where we did not, and we still do not have a comprehensive federal privacy law, but companies had to take steps to address GDPR compliance. And they ended up making that a baseline here in the United States in order to sort of create operational efficiencies. So you mentioned the kind of flexibility and the voluntary approach um, that some companies take. And that is actually one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, because in the US, I think we've seen a lot of kind of voluntary commitments, the pledges, right? The the Biden administration got 15 of the big companies to to say that they're going to adopt these voluntary commitments to manage the risk of AI. So how are those commitments taking a role here? How how are they affecting the conversation of regulation if the companies are saying, oh, we'll, you know, we're happy to just self-regulate and impose these limits? Is is that kind of deferring the conversation of reg- on regulation or or not? I don't think it's going to defer the sort of the regulatory conversation. You know, I think what the Biden administration did here was recognize that it wasn't quite ready to move forward with something comprehensive. It wasn't seeing anything in Congress. It was concerned about the rate at which these sort of generative AI models were becoming commercially available. I think is a little spooked by the conversation of sort of existential risk of these models. And you know, tried to put in place a, a framework that everyone could agree to with the idea being that this will sort of serve as baseline requirements, even if they are voluntary at the moment. So I, you know, I think we're going to see all of these commitments reflected in the upcoming executive order. Probably there will be more in the executive order. You know, it's important to realize that these sorts of commitments the companies take them seriously and the administration takes them seriously, but that also means that they are sort of heavily negotiated. And these are the sorts of things that, you know, one would expect that these companies might have been doing anyway. I don't think that makes it any less forceful, but they sort of form the backbone of, you know, good data governance, responsible stewardship. And so at least in my practice, you know, we use this as a benchmark already for other clients who might not as be as sophisticated as these companies that are actually developing these foundation models, sort of pointing to this and saying, these are the sort of compliance steps that uh, the administration, that regulators are going to expect. And so keep these in mind when you're developing your own sort of AI policies and governance frameworks. I would, I would maybe just add that in Europe, Private companies have also been have also been interacting with lawmakers to get a better understanding of their concerns, but most importantly to show that they were willing to address those concerns. And typically we've seen private companies committing to crafting a voluntary pact for AI to mitigate the gravest the gravest risks associated with AI until the AI Act enters into application. And that's because the EU thinks that ChatGPT created a sense of urgency and it cannot afford to wait until the AI Act becomes applicable. Interestingly, some companies have been more critical 
and raised concerns that the AI Act would be over-regulating, which means that they might actually consider leaving Europe if they couldn't comply with the rules. It's probably too early to say, but it's fair to expect that any voluntary commitment to manage the risks of AI will be broadly in line with the main principles we'll have in the AI Act. But clearly, it's unlikely to be as detailed. So as you're tracking these regulatory efforts, both in the EU and in the US, do you think that there are any noticeable gaps regarding stakeholder involvement? I I guess what I'm asking is, when we're seeing these you know, very ambitious approaches to comprehensive regulation of artificial intelligence. Who is kind of invited to shape the way that this regulation is going to 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 look? And are there sectors or people, communities that you think should be involved and are maybe not having a seat at the table? So, so stakeholder involvement in Europe has been quite comprehensive. Generally speaking, Brussels is known for being the world's second capital for lobbying after DC. Uh, and that's something we've seen again with the AI Act. Since the European Commission published its proposal for the AI Act, you have various stakeholders that, that try to be involved and various stakeholders have been feeding lawmakers with their observations on the proposed rules. Um, stakeholders include a variety of players, including businesses providing feedback in their own name or through industry associations. But you also have many NGOs and civil society as well. And now the Parliament, the European Parliament, the European Commission, and the European national governments are negotiating, as I said, to reach a final text. And so really a, a, a broad variety of stakeholders' interests have been discussed thus far. Yeah, I think in the U.S. it's been reasonably balanced so far. I mean, certainly, you know, the large technology companies have been very focused on trying to craft eventual legislation or regulatory approaches that's to be expected certain sectors as well have been really focused on this Um, for example healthcare financial services but we have seen a lot of conversation from from nonprofits civil society and i do think their voices are being heard because you see that reflected their concerns about democratic values civil rights reflected at least in the administration's sort of overall approach to things and agencies like the Federal Trade Commission as well have been really focused on sort of the impact on individual consumers and making sure that outcomes are not discriminatory or biased. I guess the the places where I I wonder well whether or not there'll be more representation over the coming years is sort of the sort of smaller smaller businesses that are going to be the end users of of these AI systems and. I've maybe not seen quite so much comment um, from them, at least in response to administration requests from Congress, though there are certainly, you know, a number of trade associations that, that do represent their interests on the Hill. Part of your work is to help companies navigate these AI-related challenges. 
And you've already hinted at this at different points during the conversation, but I, I do want to have a space where we talk about it clearly. How do you do that? How are you helping these companies when you don't really know, it's unclear what AI regulation will look like even in the near future, not even you know speaking you know, long-term? Yeah, I mean, I approach this from my background as a privacy and data security attorney, because as I alluded to earlier, I do think there are some similarities in sort of how the law has developed in in those fields. You know, until the last several years, we we had some sector based privacy laws, but there wasn't anything sort of comprehensive. And so, what we were trying to do is help companies make good decisions in the absence of legislation and regulation so that they were in as good a position as possible for when there was, you know, sort of clear law that they would have to comply with. And and this is very similar to AI. We know law and regulation are coming, but we don't know what they're going to look like. And so what what we as attorneys are trying to do is sort of understand what the key issues are, understand what regulators are concerned about and put in place mechanisms now so that, you know, you're in as good a position as possible with with the upcoming laws. And so it's looking at, you know, both the AI guidance that is out there. It's listening to what the FTC, what the Hill is saying about AI. It's looking at sort of the request for comments so we understand what the administration is thinking about. And then using the tools that we have sort of as data governance and privacy attorneys to, to sort of put in place the guardrails that are going to reflect at least as best we can, you know, where we think the law and regulation are going to go. It's, it's from a European perspective, it's true that it's clearly challenging to advise clients on AI regulation at the moment in the current context. But that's also what makes the work exciting. Now, that said, the AI Act is taking shape, as we said. And I think clients appreciate that, again, it will be a fairly prescriptive regulation. I think clients also appreciate that the AI Act will have extraterritorial reach and that it's likely to inspire many lawmakers across the globe, just like what we've seen with the GDPR. So part of what we do is to help companies familiarize themselves with EU rules. And I think it's important to highlight probably two things based on our experience with businesses' compliance with uh, data protection rules when the GDPR came into application five years ago now. And these are probably two important principles that guide our advice to clients. The first thing is that it takes a lot of time to understand and digest rules that tend to be quite complicated and fairly theoretical. And then it takes even more time to translate those rules into concrete internal compliance processes. And it takes even more time to implement such processes. So companies shouldn't wait for the AI Act to enter into application like so many companies did with the GDPR. Uh, this, clearly, this will be too late. So companies should start preparing now. Again, I think we mentioned that in practice, it's true that the AI Act will probably 
only start to apply early 2026. But it's really, really, it's going to take a, a lot of time to 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 prepare for this. So so now's the time for that. And the second thing is that, again, just like with the GDPR, this won't just be about paperwork. And, and obviously, that doesn't mean that there won't be any paperwork, but it will be way more than that. So this is not about making nice statements regarding a company's commitment to develop AI for the command good, for example. It's, it's way more concrete. Companies that develop AI systems will actually need to make sure that they do so in a way that is compliant with the rules. And companies that do not develop AI systems will need to understand that those rules are not just about the big innovate tech companies of this world. There will also be requirements for a company that use AI systems. And that's probably a fair number of companies today. And, and definitely that number will keep growing in the next few, few years. I think just to sort of emphasize what we've we've talked about here and acknowledge that you know it is true the law in the US is going to move very quickly and that there's a lot of uncertainty but that there are steps you can take today and ways to sort of think about data uses for AI that I think are going to benefit companies in the long term. We've been thinking about this sort of our firm at our firm through the lens of of big data, you know, in 20, I think 16 and 2015, it was, we had two big data reports that were released by then, I think it was the Obama administration and also had a report from the FTC that laid out a lot of the sort of concerns that it was seeing with, with big data and how it was going to approach, approach those issues, including discrimination um, including transparency and understanding how sort of regulators and the administration have continued to grapple with those big data challenges is going to be, I think, critical for what is sort of the corollary of that, you know, artificial intelligence. And so, you know, taking some of the lessons that we've learned over the past several years in working with big data in dealing with sort of these state comprehensive privacy laws that we have in the US is is going to be very helpful for companies and and sort of at its foundation is right you need to be thoughtful about how you're going to use AI and data you want to think about things like transparency and you also want to think about sort of like what substantive protections can you put in place uh, now to to mitigate risks in the long term well, I, I think we've said a lot already, but I'd just like to insist that in Europe, it will be extremely important to have a global understanding of all relevant rules. As I said, it's not just about the AI Act. I've already mentioned the GDPR and specific instruments and damages, but there will also be interactions with other instruments. Frankly, there are too many of them, so I can't mention all of them here, but uh, just as an example, you'll need to think about the Data Act when it comes to AI in the Internet of Things. Uh, you'll also need to think about the Digital Services Act, the DSA, when it comes to AI 
in content moderation and systems for promoting personalized content in social media. And also the largest players will also need to, to consider competition rules under the DMA, the Digital Markets Act. So I could, I could go on and give other examples, but the idea really is that there is a constellation of instruments to consider in Europe. And while the AI Act will definitely play a central role for the regulation of AI, it will be interacting with many other instruments. Okay, that's a great place to end. Ariana, it's like, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. Thank you very much for having us. It was a real pleasure. Thanks indeed. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. You can get an ad-free version of this and other Lawfare Podcasts by becoming a Lawfare Material supporter at patreon.com slash lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Look out for our other podcasts, including Rational Security, Chatter, Allies, and The Aftermath, our latest Lawfare Presents podcast series on the government's response to January 6th. Check out our written work at lawfaremedia.org. The podcast is edited by Jen Patya Howell and your audio engineer this episode was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.